We have now in chapter 14 the murder of John the Baptist. Let me begin reading. At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Somebody says, That sure sounds superstitious. My friend, it is superstitious, but it's not the superstition of the Bible, nor is it the superstition of Jesus, nor is it the superstition of his apostles, nor is it the superstition of Christianity. It's the superstition of old Herod, and the superstition, actually, of ignorant men and women of that day and of this day. Now, no real Christian would believe that type of thing, of course. You see, the ministry and the person of the Lord Jesus could not escape the notice of the king on the throne. And Herod, and I've recommended this before, you ought to look that up in a good Bible dictionary, and you'll find out that Herod family say they're a bunch of rascals and of the very darkest hue. You can talk about the mafia. They were the mafia of the first century, and this Herod is no exception. And he was superstitious. He had a bad conscience. He'd put John the Baptist to death. And believe me, he's disturbed about it. You see, he didn't question the mighty works. And old Herod was as superstitious as he possibly could be. This incident that's being recorded here is a playback, a flashback of what had happened previously to this. And it was the way in which he had killed John the Baptist. Now he associates and identifies the Lord Jesus with him. He thinks it's John risen from the dead. You say, well, that's superstitious. It certainly is. Here's one of the most superstitious men that you've ever met. Brutal, a murderer, and he's a murderer of the forerunner of Christ, and he's prepared to murder the Lord Jesus himself. Actually, Herod was a weakling. He was a debased, depraved, and drunken sot. When he heard of the preaching of Jesus, immediately he's filled with superstition, and his fear would change to frenzy because he wanted to eliminate John altogether. Somebody says, well, of course, today we're not superstitious like that, aren't we? You go down to your five and ten cent store and see how they're doing with these astrology charts, the month that you're born in. My, how people are falling for that today. And the pagan religions of the Orient are having a tremendous influence with young people today. The human race is superstitious, friends. And the minute you get away from the Word of God, you become superstitious. That is the thing that characterizes men today. A great many call themselves atheistic, and yet they're turning by the scores into these different cults and isms that are just about as pagan as anything possibly could be. And you actually wonder how intelligent people could become involved in it. You remember that the Word of God said again and again, the Lord Jesus himself said that though they would reject him, if another came in his own name, why, they'd receive him. That, of course, is Antichrist who's yet to come. But they will take on any 
leader today that promises anything. I don't think human nature has really changed much. We think we're civilized because we have transistor radios. But that doesn't mean we're civilized by any means. Now, you'll notice that Herod here is the one who put John to death, and these are the circumstances which had happened previously to this incident. Now, let me read it. For Herod had laid hold on John, that was in the past, and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. Now, notice how this man is influenced by others. Here it'll be for her sake. Later on it'll be for their sake. Everything he did, he was motivated like a politician. It's just to get votes, the approval of the others. Now will you notice, For John said unto him, It's not lawful for thee to have her. John the Baptist, you see, had spoken out. He wasn't a very good politician. And when he would have put him to death, He feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Now he's afraid of the crowd, you see. This man, Herod, he's a rascal. Verse 6, But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. He's a lascivious, lustful old creature living with his brother's wife at the time, and John the Baptist had condemned him. The dancing of this young girl had really won him over, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And he expected she'd ask for some material thing, and something in reason, by the way. And she, being before instructed of a mother, said, "'Give me John Baptist's head in a charger.'" This woman hated John because he, of course, condemned her. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. Now imagine a man motivated by that. He was afraid of what the others there might think of him, having promised something and then not make good. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. Isn't this a sadistic, sad sordid, sorry account of what took place in that day. And it reveals the type of society that existed then. I don't think, again, human nature's changed, has it? You look at our contemporary culture, I tell you, (laughs) murder and lust, all of these things. Of course, today, why we call evil good and good evil, this is described in other language, but the Bible still describes it as this. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Now, this caused the Lord Jesus to withdraw because the fear of this man, Herod, would break out into a frenzy and he would do something quite dastardly. The Lord Jesus, of course, knew this man And he withdrew, because his hour had not yet come. Verse 13, When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. He went by ship across the Sea of Galilee, but the crowd went around the shore walking. It reveals how popular he was with the crowd. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude, 
and he was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. And notice that again. They had brought the sick out to him. Literally, there were thousands of people he had healed in that day. It's interesting. Again, I call attention to it, not in an ugly way, but I can't find the results of all of this healing that's going on today. You wouldn't have had any problem in the day when our Lord was here. And I think it's blasphemous to compare with what he did. It casts a reflection on him, because what he did, my friend, was up and above board, and it is altogether different than the healing cult of the present time. Now, verse 15, "...and when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals." He actually asked his disciples, really, what he should do. And their advice was, better send them into the villages. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart, give ye them to eat. Now, this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in all four Gospels. It's the one miracle that is recorded. And for that reason alone, it's an important miracle, as you can see these apostles now point themselves on the board of directors to tell him what to do. And the Lord Jesus now says to them, They need not depart. You give them to eat. And they say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. That's the sad state of the church. Right now, people are saying, We need to send the multitude away. There are natural ways of doing this. Well, my friend, we have spiritual bread to offer folk. And unfortunately, the church doesn't have but five loaves and two fishes. But the thing that's lacking is the power of the Lord Jesus. If we only had that power, you wouldn't need to send the multitudes away. But we feel that they must be sent away and that the psychiatrist can help them probably. And they need to be sent to the government for relief. The solutions are not in God today. They're in government and in human machinations. That's the way it's being done. No wonder the church is powerless. Now, he said, bring them hither to me. I love that. He's the king, friends. And he says here, bring what you've got to me. And I don't know what you've got in the way of five loaves and two little fishes, now, don't get the impression these are great big loaves of bread. Actually, they were little buns. They were 5,000 out there and five little buns. This little boy had brought them. It was his lunch. He could have eaten every bit of it. And the fish was in there, five little sandwiches. And he said, bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. And actually, they sat down according to families. Someone has called attention to this, which I'm sure most of us would have passed it by. Out there on that green grass, and these people wore colorful clothes, here would be one group they'd have on red, another brown, another blue, another orange, and purple, and a great deal of purple, I imagine. The dye was in that area. What a sight it would have been to have been over on the other hill and to have looked over on this hillside to see that. 
looked like one of these old-fashioned quilts. I imagine what a picture we have. Now he has them sit down on the grass and order. Our Lord did things orderly. And he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. These fellows that had appointed themselves on the board of directors to tell him what to do, they find themselves now waiters waiting on the crowd. And that is really the particular ministry of apostles, disciples, ministers, evangelists, and Christians today. We are to feed the multitude, not tell him how to do it. There are too many people in the church that want to tell how it should be done. There are so few that are willing to do it. As one preacher said to me, he said, In my church we have all chiefs and no Indians. Everybody wants to be uh, head of something, on a committee, doing something, places a leadership. What we need, friends, we don't need more of that today. We need these waiters to give out the bread of life. And that bread is the Word of God. That's our business. We're just waiters passing it out. And we need more people today to help in passing it out. And they did all eat and were filled, and they took up of the fragments that remained twelve baskets full. Now, when they took up fragments, I formerly thought that it meant somebody bit into a sandwich, maybe saw a bigger one and put that in down, and the fragments was that. Here are twelve baskets of sandwiches that weren't even touched. What a lesson is here. It's hard for us who live in the midst of supermarkets to understand that most of the people of the world went to bed hungry last night. And these people, this is the first meal many of them had ever had when their tummies were really filled. The 12 baskets of fragments indicate everybody had had enough. I have a notion some had had too much. And they that were eaten were 5,000 men beside women and children. Well, wouldn't you be willing to put one woman and one child with each man? If that's true, then he fed 15,000 there that day, and I think that's the minimum. Now we have this wonderful incident of our Lord walking on the water on the Sea of Galilee, and straightway, and that's a word of urgency and swift movement, and straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. When the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. The picture that's before us, he's up yonder in the mountain in the place of prayer. They are down on the Sea of Galilee in a storm and in darkness, and they are in the place of peril. That's a picture of today. He has gone on to the Father, the Father's right hand, and we're down here today on a storm-tossed sea in the place of peril. I love, though, this next one here. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. In the fourth watch, he came to them. Now, that's the morning watch. That is from three in the morning until daylight. And that's the watch that he's coming at the sunrise. Before he comes, he's the bright morning star for the church, and he'll take the church out of the world. 
I don't know. I can't say specifically. I know there are men that seem to know a great deal more than I know. And that, of course, is not unusual. But they seem to know when he's coming. I don't know. All I know is I believe we're in the fourth watch of the night. Now, verse 26, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a spirit, for they cried out for fear. This is the picture. He's up there, and he saw them, as Mark says, toiling and rowing. We're going to come to this in the other Gospels, and I'll go into a little more detail there. But the important thing here is that he saw them, but he came to them in the fourth watch. And when they saw him, they said, It's a spirit, and they cried out for fear. Somebody's going to say, Well, they're superstitious. Well, I think there's a certain amount of superstition in them. But what would you think? Uh, a fellow many years ago from Tennessee, he said, I didn't believe in ghosts either until I saw one. And that's the position of these folk here. They had never seen a spirit before, but they're seeing what they think is one now. But straightway Jesus spoke unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it's I, be not afraid. And the incident that is recorded here that I want to emphasize, I'll come back to this in the other Gospels, but notice, straightway Jesus spoke unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it's I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou bid me come unto thee on the water. This man has certainly been criticized for this. Well, I think that I'd rather admire the man. They say he shouldn't have asked this. Well, it was John Wesley said, expect great things of God. And I'm afraid many of us are satisfied with little things. Notice, and he said, come. Our Lord didn't rebuke him for it. He told him to come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And I hear people say, well, this man failed. That's not the way my Bible has it here. It says he walked on the water to go to Jesus. He walked on the water. It says it here. I'm reading it. <laughs> he did walk on the water. This is amazing. This man asks this tremendous thing. No wonder God could use him such a wonderful way afterward. No wonder he was chosen to preach a sermon on the day of Pentecost. Now notice verse 30. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried, Lord, save me. You see that he got his eyes off of Jesus, but he walked on the water. And when he did, he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. That is the shortest prayer in the Bible. Well, as someone has said, Simon Peter prayed this prayer like some of us preachers pray, Lord, thou who art the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent one, he'd have been 20 feet underwater before he'd have got to what he wanted. He got right down to business. And I think this is the type of praying we need today. Lord, save me. Now notice again. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand, caught him, and said unto him, O thou little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? You see, his problem was he took his eyes off Jesus, got his eyes on those waves rolling. You and I today are in a world where we see the waves rolling, and this is the time when we need to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus. It is that today that's all important. When they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Verse 33, Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Now he performed this miracle for his own 
that they might be brought into the place of faith. And when you see even Simon Peter, who was audacious enough to say, Lord, bid me come to you on the water. Yet when he began to walk, that should have encouraged him. But he got his eyes off Jesus on that water. And I don't want to criticize him because that's been my problem. Maybe it's been your problem. I've stepped out many times by faith and then take my eyes off of him. That's the tragedy of the hour for us. But this was done that they might worship him and know that he's the Son of God. And this is the time they need to know it. When they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. When the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out unto all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased and besought him that he might only touch the hem of his garment and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Again, I must call your attention now in closing is look at the multitudes he healed in that day. We have a record of only very few. Matthew makes it very clear there were multitudes in that day. How impressive this should be to us today. Now we continue in this section of Matthew where we have a movement, and the movement is of the king. He is beginning now to move toward the cross. We've already seen his rejection and conflict. And actually, this chapter here advances the ministry of Jesus to the very breaking point with the religious rulers. He has an altercation here with them, and you find him denouncing scribes and Pharisees. He rebukes his disciples. He heals the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman and the multitudes and feeds the 4,000. There's a lot of action in this chapter, as you can see. So let's plunge right into it. And first, we have the Lord Jesus denouncing the scribes and Pharisees. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. We have here the scribes and Pharisees have come out from Jerusalem. And you'll recall that back in the last chapter, he was way out in a desert place where the crowd couldn't even get to a hamburger stand and they had nothing to eat and he fed them. So these religious rulers come all the way out. And you would say, well, my, this is a very wonderful thing that they've come all the way out. Well, frankly, they haven't come all the way out to applaud him or to accept his teaching. They've come out to criticize, and immediately we recognize it was not a friendly visit. They did not, you see, accuse him really of breaking the Scriptures, but the tradition which they considered to be on a par with the Scriptures. And they want to know why that they didn't wash their hands. Well, that's a very interesting thing because a great many people feel like if you go through some sort of an outward ceremony and clean up the outside some way, that that is all that's necessary. And they're wondering why now that they have not washed their hands. It was ceremonial cleansing, actually, and was not really what we would consider physical or sanitary reason. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? 
these men now accuses of breaking the commandment of God with their tradition. Their tradition, you see, permitted a man to disobey the law. That's an amazing thing. And they had a very clever way of doing it. Verse 4, "...for God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother." And he that curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father his mother, It's a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by it, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Now he says you honor your father and mother by supporting them. And the way that they got around it in that day was to dedicate it to the temple. They would contribute as a gift to God, and that would relieve them of the responsibility of supporting their parents. Now, this gives a very pious way out for a man to break the Mosaic law. And very frankly, I still believe that the best way to test a Christian is by his pocketbook. That is the barometer of the Christian even today. That's the real test. How does he handle his money? How does he handle God's money? I actually believe that God would have you put your very close personal responsibilities first. I'm of the opinion that God wants you to pay your honest debts before you give to him. I think that he wants you to support your family before you give to him. Now, I had a man, he had a wild idea. He would come on payday. He'd want to give half his income, and his, actually his family went hungry. When we found that out, we had quite a little talk with him. And my, he was offended at first. But finally, he saw the light in the sense that he saw that he'd neglected his own family. And that's a tragic thing to do. It's amazing how people try in many ways to escape a responsibility in a very pious way. Notice here what he says in verse 7. Ye hypocrites, and this is the most frightful word in the Scripture. Nothing quite corresponds to it, but it doesn't have quite the connotation at that time that it does now. It's a scorching word today. And it actually was a word used for an actor in a play. It means that one would receive a cue and then answer back. That's what it means to answer back. In other words, the Lord Jesus accused them of playing at religion. And he quotes now Isaiah, "...ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, The people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me." That is the important thing. They were very eager to have you go through a ceremony of washing your hands. But the important thing was the condition of the heart. Here they were doing something, breaking really the Mosaic law in a very pious way. My, how we can rationalize today. And we do the same thing. How many parents say to their children, you wash your hands before you come to the table, but they pay no attention to what they're seeing on television. 
And it's this thing that is the damaging thing to the heart. Oh, of course they should wash their hands, but that's not final, by the way. It's what's on the inside that is the important thing. Now we find him here, verse 10, "...and he called a multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand." Now he enlarges upon this. "...not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man." Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? My, they were amazed that he would offend the Pharisees. This actually is the real break between them up to this point. Now, there's been a conflict, but now we've come to the breaking point. And here it is. Listen to him. But he answered and said, Every plant, and you could almost say the word would mean system, every system which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up, every system. It's not, I think, too broad to interpret Jesus as saying every religious system which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Now we read on in verse 14, "...let them alone." They be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. And I think this is a humorous statement that he made at this point. It's certainly biting sarcasm. If a blind man leads a blind man, they both will fall into a ditch. And the Pharisees were blind leaders. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. And Jesus said, are ye also yet without understanding? Now, he's been speaking to them in parables, and they don't seem to have gotten the point yet. And Jesus said, Are ye yet without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly, and is cast out into the draft? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. Now, here is a great principle. It's not what goes in the mouth, it's what comes out of the mouth. And by the way, what's in the well of the heart is going to come up in the bucket of the mouth sooner or later. Because listen to him, "...for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries." fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. We are seeing that working out in our contemporary culture today. We've come to a period of what's known as new morality. We've reached the day that Isaiah talked about. He said the day is coming when they'll call evil good and good evil. And they're doing that today. You and I are a square if we believe the Bible. And this sort of thing is entirely wrong. And we're entirely wrong. But if you engage in these things, what do we have in this day of freedom? Now that the lid has been taken off and man today can express what's in his heart what comes out? New morality? No, same old thing. Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, 
We hear a great deal about sex today. That's what you expect. Foreign occasions, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Great day of freedom. But my friend, if you don't put the lid on the bucket, you've opened really a Pandora's box and we're in trouble. Man has to be controlled. Man's the most vicious animal on this earth. And we put other animals in cages. And yet we're talking today, man must be free to do his thing. Well, here's what he'll do. It's not new morality at all. And our Lord said this sort of thing was evil. And these things defile the man. About us today, all of this emphasis upon sex in our schools, now in our churches, everywhere, on television, radio today, it stares at you from the billboards and the front page of magazines and the headlines on papers. My friend, these things defile you. Don't tell me that you are immune to this type of thing. No one's immune to it. And these are the things that are defiling young people, and yet it's all being done in the high, lofty-sounding terminology of freedom of speech, and that today we must express ourselves. And this is the way we're doing it. The thing that's in the heart is now coming out. This is a tremendous statement. Now, verse 21, "...then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon." Now, he's left the land for the first time, and that's interesting. He has come as king. You remember he sent his own, "...go to the cities of this nation. Go not beyond the boundaries of the nation Israel." He sent them out, and he was rejected. There was the conflict, and now there's the open break. The breaking point has come. What happens? He steps over the boundary himself for the first time to put out another great principle, and that is he'll receive Gentiles. His invitation is a sincere one. Ho, everyone that thirsty, come to the waters now. Wait, that's in the Old Testament. But he said, come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, I'll rest you. Now notice the incident that took place. Behold, a woman of Canaan, she was a Canaanite, came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. Now, she had no claim on him as son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a demon. But he answered her not a word. Why? Well, she has no claim on him. He answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. She was causing a disturbance, probably a little embarrassment. And he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, you mark that down. That is the primary issue that had to be settled, and he died with this superscription written over him, the king of the Jews. Now listen to her. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Before son of David, he said, I'm just sent to the lost sheep, the house of Israel. She had no claim upon him as son of David. Now she comes and worships him, and she calls him Lord, and she asks for help, and she's going to get it. And he answered and said, It's not meat to take the children's bread, cast it to dogs, 
And that's a very strong statement. That rebuff would have driven many of us away. Well, we would have walked away and said, you can't talk to us like that. Well, listen, verse 27, she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. You remember the poor man that ate the crumbs that fell from a rich man's table, and the dogs licked his sores. Now, verse 28, Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Marvel really at the faith of this woman. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. So when he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor, and are heavy laden, I'll help you. I'll lift the burden. That's what he's doing, even for a Canaanite. Her answer, I tell you, revealed a great faith. And on that, our Lord responded. Now, verse 29, Jesus departed from thence, came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee, and went up into a mountain, sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. And again, my friend, I call your attention, multitudes were healed, not just a few little isolated cases that, after all, you can't really substantiate. But there were too many in that day. Nobody denied he performed the miracles, insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they continue with me now three days, and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. Now, again, his compassion on the multitude. And his disciples say unto him, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? Now, don't miss this, because very frankly, when you read this incident here, you feel like that it's just a rerun of the feeding of the 5,000. It's just a repetition. And you wonder why Matthew included it here, because it doesn't seem to add any further advancement of the messianic claims of the Lord Jesus. However, we're in the section where the emphasis is not on Jesus pressing his messianic claims any longer, but the rejection of his claims. And this miracle shows how slowly the disciples were to learn. Now, they've already witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. And I don't think it took place but just a few days before this. But here they raise the same old objections of unbelief. Same thing that they say here. His disciples say unto him, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to feed so great a multitude? And Jesus said unto them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven and a few little fishes. He commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and fishes and gave thanks. And you have here feeding the multitudes. Now, it reveals that his disciples hadn't really learned the lesson. And their reluctance to believe actually constitutes a form of rejection. You remember, unbelief is sin. Paul in Romans 14, 23 said, "...whatsoever is not of faith is sin." 
and I think laying aside in every weight. What is every weight? Well, I think it's unbelief and the sin, sin of unbelief. You and I today just don't believe it. If you want me to make a confession, and I'm willing to make a confession, and it is just simply this, I wish I believed him more. He can be believed. I ought to believe him. But the problem is with me, and I'm of the opinion that the problem is with you also. He fed the multitude. Now we're told, verse 38, "...and they that did eat were four thousand men." beside women and children. And again, it's 4,000 plus. And I'm sure that you'd have to put one woman with a man, one child with the man and the woman, the family, so that you would have here four multiplied by three. And that would be 12,000 were fed at this time. He sent away the multitude and took ship and came into the coast of Magdala. And that place is on the Sea of Galilee today, in ruins. Now, this chapter reveals that his disciples were just not keeping up. They were slow to believe and understand. And actually, this is hindering the Lord Jesus. It would seem at this point that since he's reached the breaking point with the religious rulers, that he's having a real problem with his disciples. And he's just marking time now until they catch up. Very frankly, today he's very patient with you and me also that we might catch up. I'm afraid a great many of us need to catch up with him today. Oh, that we might believe him. Now, in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and if you found your place there, we see that this chapter continues the conflict that the Lord Jesus had with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And we've come now to the place where our Lord calls for a confession from his disciples. And Peter, I think, speaks for the group. And then the Lord Jesus confronts them for the first time with the church, his death and resurrection. Now we open with the Pharisees and Sadducees again asking for a sign from heaven. And they are again referred to Jonah. I'm reading now. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came, and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? Now, the scribes and Pharisees, back in the twelfth chapter, you will recall at verse 38, they came and asked the same question for a sign. At that very same time, our Lord gave them the sign of Jonah. He's going to do that here, but He calls their attention to the fact that they were very good at being weather prophets. They could predict the weather, but they didn't seem to be able to recognize the signs of the times. The religious rulers actually are trying to trap him, and he is going to warn his own to beware of them. And now, you notice again here, this is the second time he calls them 
O ye hypocrites. Then, verse 4, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. They had many signs, but they would not accept them. And there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. And there's a note of finality in his action here as he turns and walks away from them, but he gives them again to Jonah. And his answer is very brief here, but it's very much to the point. And we know that he had told them as Jonah was, and so he would be in the heart of the earth. Now, you find that these Pharisees and Sadducees, they were not even about to accept him at all. There are revealed in this chapter three viewpoints that are presented concerning the Lord Jesus. And this is the first one. The Pharisees and Sadducees believed that the Lord Jesus was an imposter. To them, he was not the Messiah at all. And then you have the viewpoint of the multitudes. And to them, Jesus was John the Baptist or Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. They were complimentary, but they all missed the mark. And then his disciples, who recognized him as the Messiah, are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Peter was the spokesman at that time. Now, let's move on as we see him warning his disciples now of the leaven, the false doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And we are told, and when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And now verse 6, Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, at the 13th chapter, I made it very clear that leaven was a principle of evil. It was never a principle of good, and that it always was that. And here, I think we have a confirmation from the Lord. He says to beware of the leaven. Well, if you're to beware of something, it's certainly not something that you're welcome or something that's good. The leaven of the Pharisees and of the scribes was what? They reasoned among themselves, saying, it's because we've taken no bread. You see, they missed the understanding of the leaven at first. Now, verse 8, "...which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, And you can call these men now little faith, because again and again he's reminded them of their little faith. Why reason ye among yourselves, because ye have brought no bread? Do ye not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? Neither the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? How is it that ye do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread, that ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees." Now, friends, leaven, therefore, according to our Lord's interpretation of it, is nothing in the world but false doctrine. It's that which is evil. 
It's never good. And when you talk about the leaven of the gospel, you're using a contradiction of terms. The leaven is never a picture of the gospel. Our Lord warns them of it here and says it's the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. That, I think, ought to clarify once and for all what leaven is. That is, if you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as an authority, which he is. Now, in verse 13, we come to Caesarea Philippi, and we have this marvelous confession of himself from his disciples. And he mentions the church for the first time. And again, we need to make some very sharp distinctions here, friends. And I'm convinced that all the way through this gospel, we certainly need to keep our thinking cap on because this is the gospel that is the key to the rest of the Scripture. Now, will you notice verse 13 of chapter 16 of Matthew. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men... Say that I, the Son of Man, am. Now, he's way in the north, and he's in a position from which he's going to turn and begin a movement directly toward Jerusalem. And before he begins that journey, there are two things that his disciples must be clear on, who he is and what he's going to do. And friends, those are the two things that you have to be clear on to be a Christian. You have to know who he is, and you have to know what he did. And it's that that determines your salvation and my salvation. These are the things that we're to know in order that we might exercise faith and be saved. The first question that he'll put to them here is this. Whom do man say that I, the Son of Man, am? And that's a question that he's still asking, and that's a question that is still being answered today. He's still the most controversial person who's ever lived on top side of this earth. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now you have the viewpoint of the multitude, of the crowd. What would they think? I believe if you took a microphone, went out on the street corner in your town, you'd probably get these same answers, because men are still as much confused about him. Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist was a great man. They recognized him as such. And there are those that say today, Jesus is a great teacher. And others say that He's Elias, that is, Elijah. And Elijah was a great person. And there are those that say today of Jesus, he's a great person. And others, Jeremiah's. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. And there are great many saw in him a weeping prophet. He wept over Jerusalem. He gave predictions. They gave him full credit for that, that he was a great prophet. Or others said he's just one of the prophets. And I suppose each one had his own particular viewpoint. Now, that's the viewpoint of the crowd. That's the viewpoint of the average person today. Again, may I say, if you would go and ask, maybe some of you would like to make the test. If you do, let me know what viewpoints you've got. 
I know a man, uh, he was uh, one of these extrovert preachers, a young preacher. He was a friend of mine. He was always doing something unusual. And he went out on the street corner, and he asked this question, because he heard me say this same thing I'm saying now, that you could get all sorts of viewpoints concerning who Jesus Christ is. And he got all sorts of interpretations. Many people said that they thought he was one of the greatest teachers the world has ever seen, one a founder of religion. Another felt that he was a good man. And another, well, he didn't think so much about him. He just would put him in a class with other men that were famous in history. Just one of the prophets, you see. Now he turns to the apostles, and he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And, of course, that's what he's asking you and me. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ. Now, that means the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One who was predicted in the Old Testament and fulfills all of that, the Son of the living God. Now, up to this point, that was the highest testimony and the best confession that could be made of him. This is who he is. Now Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, no man today can call Jesus Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit of God can take the things of Christ and show them unto us. So that our Lord could say to Simon Peter, flesh and blood, didn't reveal this to you. You didn't get it by being with me. A great many people say, well, if I could have been with him three years, and these men have been with him now two and a half years, then I would really know who he is. Would you? May I say that you can know him just as well today because the Spirit of God has to make him real to you. Now, will you notice verse 18? And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, let's look at this for just a moment. What rock did Christ build the church on? There are those that say that it was Simon Peter. Well, that's obvious. It's not, for there is a play upon words here. Thou art Petros upon this Petria. Thou art Petros, a little piece of rock, and upon this bedrock I will build my church. Now, there are others that say that that rock that he's building the church on is the confession that Simon Peter made. And friends, that's not it at all. Who is the rock? Well, the rock is Christ. On this rock, on Christ, I'll build my church. Now, if you went over to Simon Peter's own explanation of this, you'll find out that he made it very clear in his epistle that he was that precious stone. I'll not turn to that. We'll pick that up when we come to Simon Peter's two epistles. But you could turn there, and you'll find out he called him a precious stone. Now, the church is built upon him. No other foundation can any man lay. Now, he is the stone. And he says, on this rock I will build my church. The church was future then. 
Don't tell me there's a church in the Old Testament. There wasn't even a church in existence until after the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. It couldn't be a church until all of those things took place. And the church here is still in the future. I will build my church. And now again, the gates of hell shall not... Pre- what does he mean by the gates of hell? Well, the word here is the word Hades or Sheol in the Old Testament. Unseen world is death. And the gates of death shall not prevail against it. And friends, it's much more important, as far as I'm concerned, that the gates of death not prevail against this church. In other words, one of these days, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. And that shout will be like the voice of an archangel. And it will be like a trump, because the dead in Christ are to be raised. The gates of death shall not prevail against his church. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Who did he give them to? Simon Peter? No, he gave them to those that make this confession, that know him as Savior. In other words, if you are a child of God, you have the keys as much as any person has the keys. And it'll be up to you to unlock the door for someone. And whosoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. This is something very serious. And that means that you and I today have a responsibility. We have a gospel, and it's the only gospel that can save man. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. They'll be loosed in heaven. This, again, is something that is tremendous. Who's sufficient, friends, for these things? You and I have a responsibility that's awesome indeed. Then charged he, his disciples, that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ, because to know who he is will not save you by itself. You've got to know what he did. Now listen to him. Verse 21, from that time forth, he hadn't revealed his cross to his disciples or apostles up to this point. He did to Nicodemus that night, but not to them. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. And this is what he did for you and me. This is the the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, buried and raised again. You must know who he is, and you must know what he did for you, that he died for you, and he was worthy to die for you. Now, this is the gospel. This is the first time he says this. On the way to Jerusalem, we'll see in this gospel that five different times he calls their attention to the fact he's going to die. And it's a good thing he He schooled them in this because of the fact that they just couldn't see the cross at this time. They know who he is, but they just don't like what he's going to do. Verse 22, Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. You see, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. 
you must not, you cannot go to the cross. Their cross was not in their thinking at this time. He turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of man. You know, it's satanic for anyone who's in a position like Simon Peter to deny the facts of the gospel that Jesus died for our sins upon the cross. This is satanic when especially a man in the pulpit will deny these things. This is the only thing in the world that can save us, friends. And it's a tragic, terrible thing. And Peter later on could say, "...who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins, and by whose stripes we are healed." My, what a transformation took place in this man. And our Lord actually said, "'Get thee behind me, Satan.'" This man who, by the Spirit of God, could say that he's the Son of God, now can even let Satan deceive him. My, how far can you go and still not be a Christian? I'm afraid a great many are they're very close to the kingdom, but don't seem to quite make it. Verse 24, "'Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me.'" Now, we always interpret this as, "...let him deny himself ice cream, or deny himself some luxury, or deny himself something down here." Well, no, it doesn't say that at all. Let him deny himself. And you know, the hardest person in the world that I have to deny is to deny myself. Well, now, to deny myself dessert, that's difficult. But to deny myself is indeed a difficult thing to do. And he says, and take up his cross and follow me. And not Christ's cross, but his cross. There's a cross for you and a cross for me. That is, if we're going to follow him. This is, I think, very important to see. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. He'll come in the glory of his Father, and then he'll reward every man according to his works. Now will you notice, Verily I say unto you, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they shall see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. When will they see it? They're going to see it in the very next chapter. Actually, this verse here belongs with the next chapter, with chapter 17. And it does belong there because chapter 17 explains what our Lord meant when he made this statement. Now, how was that fulfilled for the apostles in that day? Well, this that follows was the transfiguration. And the transfiguration is that picture of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom when he was transfigured before them. 
Now, I want us to look at this, and someone may say, well, can you be sure that this has reference to the transfiguration when he said, there'll be some standing here, they'll not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, listen to Simon Peter as he wrote in 2 Peter 1, 16 and 18, and frankly, he happens to have been one of them that was there. And I'm going to quote him first. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we make known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased, and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now, when the Lord Jesus Christ was glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration with his disciples present, at least three of them that were present, why, we find that you have the fulfillment of this statement that our Lord made. It's a miniature picture of the kingdom. And this is something, of course, that Simon Peter confirmed for us. Now, we'll find that the other Gospels have the transfiguration with the exception of the Gospel of John. And that leads me to say something that may startle you here at the very beginning. The transfiguration does not prove nor set forth the deity of Christ. It sets forth the humanity of Christ. Now, the gospel of John is the gospel which emphasizes the deity of Christ, and it's omitted in the gospel of John. But all the other three gospels have it. So that that ought to alert us. Now, what you have here in the transfiguration is the Lord Jesus Christ transfigured, and that is, in my judgment, not only the proof of his humanity, and it reveals, actually, the hope of humanity. For the man that you see glorified there, transfigured, is the kind of a man that you, my friend, will be someday if you're a child of God. Beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Now, he was glorified before his death and resurrection, and this is the picture that's given to us. Now, I'm going to deal with this actually more thoroughly in the Gospel of Luke than any other, because Dr. Luke is the one that sets forth his perfect humanity. Dr. Luke has some very interesting things to say that the other two, Matthew and Mark, do not have. But let me just deal with what is here. And he was transfigured before them. And this word, transfigured, is a very wonderful word. And we are told here that his face did shine as the sun. He didn't have a light that was put on him like a spotlight. Actually... The light shone from within. This is merely a suggestion, but I would like to make it at this time. Evidently, it was this sort of thing that Adam and Eve had 
before the fall in the Garden of Eden. They were clothed with some kind of a light. Now, at the fall, you will recall, man discovered he was naked. He wasn't before because of the fact of that light that shone. Now, we find that Adam and Eve at the fall made that discovery. It's the humanity of Jesus that was transfigured. The transfiguration sets forth his perfect humanity. And it's not alluded to, as we've said, in the Gospel of John. Now, we have here something else, and I can only merely allude to this, because Dr. Luke will pick this up. This word transfigure is a very interesting word. It's metamorphosis. Now, metamorphosis can be either up or down. That little woolly caterpillar that women are generally so afraid of, that little woolly caterpillar was going to become a beautiful butterfly by the process of metamorphosis. Now, this body that I have today, filled with infirmity, this body that I have someday is going to be transfigured. Those that even are alive at the coming of Christ are to be changed, transformed. And that's the hope of humanity. Now, these things that have to do with the transfiguration, events and incidents around it, I will deal with here as Matthew gives them to us. And behold, there appeared unto him Moses and Elias talking with him. Moses was the representative of the law, and Elijah was the representative of the prophets. And Moses had died, you remember, on the mountain. God had buried him. And Elijah had departed from this world in a chariot of fire. And Dr. Luke tells us that they were discussing his decease in Jerusalem. Luke puts it like this, "...behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem." Now, you see, the law and the prophets both bore testimony to his death. Paul makes that clear. Now, will you notice what took place there? Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, Simon Peter could never resist an opportunity to make a speech. Every occasion was an auspicious occasion for him, and he generally got to his feet to say something. And generally, it was the wrong thing until the day of Pentecost. And here, it's the wrong thing. He should have kept quiet, but he couldn't, and he spoke out. Now, he's rebuked. What he's attempting to do, you see... He was attempting to put Moses and Elijah on the same plane with the Lord Jesus. And he's rebuked for that. Will you notice what we have here? It's good for us to be here. We are told elsewhere that he said this not knowing what he said. Dr. Luke, who I don't think had too much confidence in the statements of Simon Peter before Pentecost, I think Dr. Luke was a little provoked, and he would say, 
the reason he said this, he said this not knowing what he said. There are a lot of folk that talk not knowing what they are saying. And this was Simon Peter here. Now he's rebuked. I read verse 5 of Matthew 17. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Now, this is God the Father's testimony to Jesus the Son. He is the final authority in matters of revelation. Moses is fine. Elijah and what the prophet said is wonderful. The writer to the Hebrews says that God in sundry times divers manners, he spoke in times past, but now he's spoken in the Son, this one who has come to this earth. And he is the final revelation of God to man. This is a great statement that we have here. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Have you ever had a voice out of heaven commending you and saying that God was well pleased with you? Well, he's never said that to me, and he's never said that to you nor anyone else except this one. This is the only one who's ever been well-pleasing to God. And you and I will never get in God's presence until we're in Christ by faith. When we accept Christ as our Savior, then we're put in the body of believers. This is a great statement, friends. This is the only one that God's been pleased in. Verse 6, And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. You want a good motto for your life, friend? It's here in verse 8 of chapter 17 of John. Only two words, Jesus only. Jesus only. They saw no man save Jesus only. He's the one who is the authority. And I hope you've marked those two words, Jesus only, in your Bible. It's a good motto for all of us. Now, verse 9. As they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Now, why wait until then, and then why should it be told? Because it's part of the gospel story. It tells who he is. He's now the perfect Lamb of God. He's been tested for three years, and he's now on the way to the cross to die for the sins of the world. You see, it has to be a lamb without blemish. He's the only one who could die. Therefore, it's very important that we understand the transfiguration in his perfect humanity. He's transfigured. That's the hope of mankind today. The hope of mankind, friends, is not in science. It's not in education. Both of them are sort of letting us down today, don't you think? They've created Frankenstein monsters that we can't do anything with. They invented a 
little gasoline buggy up in Detroit. It's got us in a lot of trouble, polluting the air and clogging all the highways. And science can't solve the problem. Believe me, friends, the hope of the world just happens to be in a person by the name of the Lord Jesus. And you have to be mighty sure who he is. You should know him. Then the second thing is what he did for us on the cross. And he has to be able to die for the sins of the world. Now, will you notice, they're not to tell it until after his resurrection. And his disciples ask him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? And this is a remarkable statement. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. He confirms now Malachi. But listen to this. But I say unto you that Elijah has come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. That has always raised the question, as you know, in the minds of a great many. What about this man? Was John the Baptist really Elijah? And the answer, of course, is no. But our Lord is saying this. You can't bring up an argument and say that he had to go to the cross, he had to die for the simple reason that John the Baptist was not Elijah. And Elijah has to come before he comes to establish his kingdom. And he couldn't have established his kingdom. Now, I don't like iffy questions. And we're not dealing with an iffy situation. This is the way it happened. Our Lord is saying this, that if they would receive him as king, John the Baptist would be Elijah. And again, I say to you, you ask me, how could that be? I don't know. These are things God does, friends. He does a lot of things he hadn't let me in on, but he does them. And this would have been one. But it's an iffy question. It just didn't happen this way at all. But the second time now, our Lord says, likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Second time he's mentioned it. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Now, we have a scene, and this is a miniature picture of today, kingdom of heaven situation. Where does the church fit in? All right, come with me now. Verse 14, we'll go to the foot of the mountain, and the other disciples down there are really in trouble. Now, will you notice? And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. This, I think, was the worst case that was ever brought to the Lord Jesus. And now listen to him. He says to him, Have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic and sore vexed, for oftentimes he falleth into the fire and off into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. That is the sad state. Here are the impotent disciples at the foot of this mountain here. And here is the picture of today. The church is in a world that's demon-possessed, and it's gone crazy, friend. You and I are living in a crazy world, and the church is impotent. Why? Because it doesn't have enough psychology or enough methods or enough money. It has all of these things. But that's not what the church needs today. Will you notice this? I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. 
Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation. And I believe that would be his word to his church today, friends, probably to you and to me. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. May I be very kind and sweet in saying this, but many folk in my physical condition recommended that I go to certain healers. I went to none. May I say I took my case to the one who says, bring him hither to me. He's the great physician. Take your case to him, my friends. And Jesus rebuked the demon. He departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. I say again, this is the worst case our Lord dealt with, and I'll be dealing with it again in Dr. Luke's gospel, and we'll have more to say about demon possession, as we've mentioned before. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? Now listen. And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Now, when you say nothing is impossible, nothing that's according to the will of God, for you to carry out the will of God in your life. It was God's will at this boy here. Now, why couldn't they do it? Well, because they didn't have faith. That was the problem. Now, verse 21 is actually not in our best manuscripts. It's not in Nestle's text, the Greek text at all. And it got in some of the others and was put here. You can do with it as you please. I do not consider it a part of the inspired Word of God. Howbeit, this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. And I believe that fasting is not essential for this at all. But as we've said before, it's voluntary. Verse 22 now, And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of man, they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again, and they were exceeding sorry. Now this is the third time he's on the way to Jerusalem, way up in Caesarea Philippi. He began mentioning this. Now he's in Galilee and again he mentions it, and all they can do is just feel sorry. Verse 24, And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? Pay temple tax, by the way. He said yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him or hindered him, went before him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute, of their own children or of strangers? Peter said unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, cast a hook, take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money, and take and give unto them for me and thee. And now he demonstrates that he has recovered what Adam lost. So that what we have here, friends, I think is something that is quite interesting. That in the transfiguration, this is what Adam was. In the tribute money, this is what Adam did. And the Lord Jesus has recovered both for us.